welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. Uh, AP Andy could not be with us today, so we have trained a robot to do his job. That's right. I've set an alarm to make sure we don't go over time, because without a time cop, we're liable to pod for two, three, four, five hundred hours. No one needs to hear that. No, seriously. Andy, uh, he, he deserved a, a week off, I think. He's really been potting burning the potting candle at both ends lately. Yeah, so um, one thing that Andy is off dealing with right now is we have officially hit our patron goal of 1917. Fwa, fwa, fwa. And as promised, we will be sending out some more limited edition postcards uh, to commemorate this uh, arbitrarily chosen milestone number that we have passed. That's right. And, uh, of course, the prize packs will be going out to everybody, as printed by Radix Media, a uh, radical workers' cooperative print shop, which will be making all the stuff. We'll be signing it, and we'll be sending those out to you in the month of August. Yeah, so if you joined after we uh, did the announcement and gave us your address, you will be getting one automatically that's right uh if you did not do that but you still want one uh send us your address and we will get you on that list you can do that either by sending us a patreon message which is probably the easiest or otherwise you can uh email us at antifadamindset at gmail.com that's right that's virgil texas at (laughs) gmail.com You know, speaking of Virgil, uh, he's been sending me late night at like 2, 3 in the morning, just vast, like massive walls of text freaking out about how uh, he thinks Trump's going to win, maybe, probably. Has he told you this? No. Uh, yeah. Wow, well. this is, I feel like you shouldn't be talking about this. <laughs> I don't want to blow up his spot, man. Well, he's, he's doing some undercover wonkery for me. Oh, uh, he no. didn't say that Trump is going to win, but he did, he did express some concern that perhaps Biden's poll numbers similar to 2016, not really as strong as they seem to be. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems possible. Uh, I don't know why liberals are being so smug about how Biden's going to win this time around because we saw what fucking happened last time. And then they're like, no, Jamie, the polls are very different. And I'm like, are they, though? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a fucking wonk. So now that I have Virgil, maybe my my I mean, I tend to look at things in broad strokes, you know, and I see none of the social forces that brought us Trump have changed since 2016. If anything, they have intensified, although, you know, his handling of the covid crisis has certainly scrambled everything. But uh, that's like not necessarily going to translate into him losing. No, no, it isn't. I mean, I think that we should all do ourselves a favor and not try to predict anything because that didn't go well last time. But. I think today we want to talk kind of more generally. We want to talk about one specific thing that Trump is doing, but then a more general question. The more general question is, is Trump a fascism? And the more particular question we want to ask is, what the fuck are they doing to our United States postal system? What the fuck are they doing to the post office? It's falling apart. They're tearing it out from the roots. What the fuck? They are literally collecting the mailboxes on big giant trucks and taking them away. Oh, my God. When you, when you mentioned uh, liberals before and their reaction uh, to, to Biden and Trump, I 
I have the luxury these days because I'm back to work and I'm, you know, off commuting all day or like not looking at my phone, not looking at Twitter or whatever. Must and, be nice. And also not watching the majority report with Sam Cedar. So I'm, I'm kind of blessedly immune from the sort of uh, brain virus that is liberalism right now. I'm not really getting any hot takes from liberals, but it seems like liberals are are kind of freaking out about this. Is that right? What's been going on with Sam Cedar over there? What are they saying? Yeah, He well, is the uber lib after all. He is very concerned about what's going on with the Postal Service. And uh, at first I kind of tuned it out. It's just more like lib shit because, you know, the Postal Service is one of probably one of his favorite things as, sure. a, as a big government social democrat. I wouldn't call him a liberal. Maybe in jest I would. I, I think that, if anything, he has his pulse his finger on the pulse of liberal America. Right? Oh, certainly. Yeah. He's a real interlocutor. Yeah, you're between getting, you're getting liberals the liberalism and the just passing right through you every single day. Mm-hmm. Like Sounds uncomfortable. <laughs> so he's very concerned about what Trump is doing to the Postal Service and primarily focusing on it as a way for Trump to try to delegitimize the results of the election and, uh, you know, set the set the ground, set the stage for refusing to leave office, at which point it will probably go to the courts. And, you know, Sam does not have any great confidence that the Democrats have a plan to stop this. And he's concerned that just like back in 2000, the courts are going to decide in favor of the Republicans because that's who they've been stacked with. Yeah, they've one thing that the Trump administration has done really, really well is get a bunch of wide eyed psychopaths on the judicial uh, in the court system. So Mm -hmm. certainly those I don't I don't think those fears are unfounded, but he's looking at it primarily from a um, an electoral standpoint. Right. That is really like the main sort of uh takeaway from what's happening is that Trump is like not just trying to steal the election. He's literally saying, I'm trying to make it so you can't vote by mail. Yeah. And and to be fair, he's also had on the head of the Postal Workers Union and Sam has. Yeah. And talked about um, some of the ways that harming the mail could also worsen inequality. It could hurt people who uh, rely on the mail for uh, prescriptions it could uh, damage people's right to vote, which will probably skew towards uh, poor. I mean, the effects will probably come down the most on poorer people and minorities and people without a uh, people without a fixed address. Although I guess that could be a problem, no matter what is going on with the postal service. Sure, sure. Uh, well, but yeah, I, these are these are all real things. But um, there's there's one other group there, though. I think that. And maybe we might focus on more than Sam, which is, of course, this unionized workforce, you know, like tens of thousands of like decent union jobs with pensions and, uh, you know, decent benefits out there. And I think I saw a statistic that over a quarter of the people who work for the USPS are uh, minority, are, are B- oh, yeah. by POC. I, I think we've talked a little bit about that, too, to be fair. Um, and some of the some of the framing of this uh has been challenged. Uh, I'm saying this wrong. Um, the the head of the Postal Workers Union said, you know, we don't just want overtime. Like, we really don't want overtime. <laughs> not gaming the whole the system, point right? in the first place is we want to earn a decent living working 40 hours a week. And if you need more workers to work more hours, you have to hire them. Right, because the, the whole idea... The, the Republicans are trying to claim that it's all a huge grift, that like the fat cat 
postal service union is just trying to beef it up with the overtime and they're inefficient and it's all these grifters out there in middle America who are on that mail route simply to take in that sweet, sweet taxpayer money. When really, I mean, going back more than a hundred years, uh, the whole idea of overtime, the whole idea of like a 40 hour work week is to penalize the boss, any boss, whether that's a private company or whether it's the postal service for not having enough employees to like make the job work with only 40 hours a week. So the idea that like, yeah, I mean the, the overtime thing, obviously no worker wants to have to work more than 40 hours a week. No, fuck that. So to be fair, I think they've actually done a pretty good job covering this at the majority report. However, I have to wonder if there are some gaps <laughs> that could perhaps be filled in by a leftist podcast such as ourselves. Is is there like is there some history here? Is there some <laughs> political economy perhaps that some, you'd like to explore? Some history we might want to weaponize perhaps. Yeah, yeah, like um, you know, I I'm trying not to be a dick. I'm trying not to be flippant towards the libs, but it's like very fucking convenient that uh all of this, well, let me back up a little bit, right? So all of this is happening. There's a proximate cause to it. And the proximate cause is that Donald Trump, in this very moment, is trying to undermine the mail-in ballot system and essentially steal the election. He said that outright. So that's the proximate cause. But to get to the ultimate cause, you can't look at the last like five, year, five months or five years or whatever. You have to go the, uh, back 50 years to 1970 when the U.S. Postal Service was fucking created. Because wow, wow, <laughs> going back in time That's right. to the <laughs> 1970s. Where, like, everyone's wearing bell-bottoms, they got cool hair, big naturals everywhere. Uh, by that, I mean natural hairstyles, although bras were very much optional at that point. But moving on from 70s boobs, um, the 19, <laughs> in 1970, you know, like there had been some postal unions that existed in the United States. But if the 1960s was anything uh, throughout that in the 50s and 60s, that decade was making real the promise of unionization in the United States, which had been made legal, obviously, for private sector workers in the 1930s with the Wagner Act. But it was actually illegal, except, except in certain states, for public sector workers to organize a union. Come the 1960s, you had mass strikes all throughout the, you know, call it the civil service in the United States. Uh, all different branches of state, local, federal government, workers pushing for the right to collectively bargain and essentially forcing the government to do that. Postal Service, right, had been part of, up until that point, the executive branch of the government, the Postmaster General was an executive cabinet seat, right? So when, in 1970, with Richard Nixon as president, the workers start to say, we want like the right to organize. We want to organize this entire postal service, not just dribs and drabs, different places across the country. So the union leadership, of course, such as it existed, was like, nah, we, we'll just do this in a legislative manner. We'll try to convince them nicely to give us the right to unionize. We want all these people in a union, but you know, we don't want to cause trouble. Well, starting in New York City, uh, the concrete jungle where dreams are made of, postal workers went on an illegal wildcat strike. 
And of course, we're condemned by everybody from like the post office of New York City to like New York State to the entire country. Certainly, the Nixon administration is like, look at these wackos. This is crazy. But then it spread to the entire country. Hell so yeah, baby. <laughs> New York City number one. If you can wildcat here, you can wildcat anywhere. Only in New York, baby. Except it wasn't. So it spreads all over the country. Eight day, massive, hundreds of thousands of people go on an illegal wildcat strike. And guess what? They fucking win. They win. So the unions are recognized. Now, every postal worker in the United States, because of militant mass direct action, has a union. But what Nixon and the Republicans and the Democrats do in 1970 is they say, we're going to take this out of the executive branch and we're going to spin off the post office into this postal service, which is a separate corporation that's going to exist outside of the regular government bureaucracy. It's going to be like Amtrak is, for example, right? Amtrak is government, but it's also like a separate books and separate regulations or whatever. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? And, 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 and what that was was that the workers defeated Nixon, right? They made... They, they 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 basically dragged the country to its knees, including Nixon, who tried to break it and couldn't. So they were like, "Well, this is somebody else's problem. We don't want this in our government anymore. We'll spin it off. What could go wrong?" Well, from that very moment, if you look at like the groups like libertarian groups and right wing groups, uh, business councils, whatever, they immediately hated this postal service because the workers had won it and because they weren't under complete control of it. Right. So starting in 1970, you had a 50 year process a bipartisan process, I might add, of trying to undermine the Postal Service and privatize it, right? And as Sam's talked about this. You were saying in the interview that the Postal Service um, union leader was talking about how this has been a bipartisan process. Right? That's right. Yeah, what, what happened? So in the 1990s, right, Clinton was part of this. Mm-hmm. And then in 2004, was it, they had that floor vote in the U.S. Congress in order to force the postal service to, to to pay the pensions up front for the workers, which like massively fucked up the finances. That's right. right. They required them to fully fund the pensions like some ridiculous number of years in advance, which there's no reason to make them do that except as an attack on the postal service as a public service. Exactly. So like, basically it's been under attack for 50 years, a bipartisan attack. The floor vote to do that by saying it was a voice vote meant it was so unanimous they didn't even feel the need to even, like, put down who voted on it. You know what I mean? That's right. And this also continued into the Obama era. I know everyone loves Thanks, Obama, Obama so much who's listening to this right now. But um, this guy, I don't even know who this guy is, Jason Johnson, tweeted that... Um, oh, he's that asshole that, like, <clears throat> he got kicked off MSNBC for calling... Um, What's her face? Brianna Joy Gray, a misfit black girl. <laughs> oh, it's that guy. It's that fucking guy. What did he have to wow. say? Wow. So she must feel pretty good about um, owning him on this one. Um, he said USPS BOG is supposed to have nine members, but they operated with an emergency committee and without a quorum for years because several Obama appointees to the committee were blocked. Who were they blocked by? Senator Bernie Sanders. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. See, why would Bernie do that? Why would Bernie do that? You would think that like a good democratic socialist like him who loves bureaucracy would love to have some good Obama appointees up on there on the board of governors. Uh, yeah, well, according to this other tweet, by Warren Gunnels, um, the postal nominees that uh, Bernie blocked were, and I quote, James Miller, uh, Ronald Reagan's OMB director who wanted to privatize the Postal Service, Uh 
Mickey Barnett, a GOP payday lending lobbyist, <laughs> and Stephen Crawford, who wanted to end Saturday mail and slash jobs, pensions, and health care benefits. So three absolute vultures and ghouls. Yeah, Bernie blocked them because he's racist. That must be why. <laughs> so these are the sort of people that even Obama's putting up there, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so this idea now, so basically the chickens are coming home to roost, right? Yeah. You had this bipartisan consensus. Basically, you had the Republicans, right, the right wing, going all the way back all those years, doing the same Reagan tactic of making the government so small that it could be drowned in a bathtub. And that's like the thousand cuts, right? Just year after year, uh, decreasing the quality of the service, you know, trying to cut pensions, trying to cut benefits, trying to consolidate routes in all these different ways, trying to give like UPS and FedEx as these private carriers, like more and more inroads into that entire industry. That's the death by a thousand cuts. But then you have... Uh, also neoliberal <laughs> Democrats who are looking to quote unquote modernize, who are looking for efficiencies, right? This is the big thing of like Blairism and Clintonism is to try to get in there and in this sort of like uh, good governance way, you know, try to try to kind of smooth out some of the rough edges of the bureaucracy. But it turns out they're both working in the same direction, which is to privatize it. Well, to be fair, these neoliberal Democrats did not know that this was going to come back to bite them in the ass. In the good year of our Lord, 2020. (laughs) This is the great irony of it, because when I said before, there's a primary and an ultimate cause, right? The, the why this is coming to a head, a head right now is because this bipartisan consensus, this basically ruling class consensus, let's call it that, because it's not just the politicians, it's also capitalist think tanks and business lobbies, certainly the CEOs of fucking DHL, FedEx, and UPS, right, are chomping at the bit to get these billions upon billions of dollars of revenue that are being, like, wasted, quote-unquote, by the U.S. Postal Service. It's this consensus that has existed for so long, but there's all this inertia that exists in government. So it takes 50 years to get to this point where the U.S. Postal Service is kind of hobbled. It's not dead yet, right? So what is it that comes as the proximate cause? It Because it's still a very popular service. Like, I think the approval rate for the post office is 91% of Americans like the postal yeah. service. I mean, you can give them a piece of paper or an object and they will take it all the way across the country for you and give it to the person that you want to give it to for like 50 cents or some shit. That's crazy. That's fucking nuts. That's and there's no really way cool. you can make a profit off of it. Like I'll, I'll talk about my feelings for the postal service in a second, but just to finish that thought, right? So the, why this is happening now is because that same inertia and that same consensus that's existed finally met craven enough political operators, and by that I mean, of course, the Trump administration, who don't give a fuck about norms, they don't give a fuck about civility, they don't care about the bureaucratic process, and they don't care about things going slowly, and they saw this as an opportunity to do two things. Of course, one, to like fatally undermine this bourgeois election that's happening, but to finally consummate what all of these ghouls have wanted to do for all these years. And the only reason people like Matt fucking Iglesias are complaining about it is because it's happening chaotically. He was saying back in 2012, well, and it's time to it's privatize it. to try to keep that gosh dang Cheeto in the White House. Thank you, yes. It's chaotic and it's for like quote-unquote political reasons, as though privatizing it wasn't fucking political the entire time. It's the dang Cheeto that we're freaking out about, not the fact that this beloved public service that represents, like, the good parts of civic life, or at least what's left of them in the United States, is being thrown to the fucking wolves, kneecapped, hundreds of thousands of good union jobs just thrown away, and the corporate capitalist vultures coming in to pick over the bones. That's not upsetting. It's the dang Cheeto. That's right. 
So I, I have to Did say. Did he stutter? Did Matt Iglesias <laughs> stutter? I think he's made himself very clear on this matter. These fucking, oh, I hate it so much. It's like, and now they want to they, they want to have like a bake sale for the USPS. They want to like, oh, let's do a campaign where we buy lots of stamps. You motherfuckers, fuck you guys. They, like, I was trying to think to myself about why I feel so strongly about it. Because for the last two weeks, I've been like following it and, and looking at it closely. And I think there's like, there seemed to be something eternal about the post office, like when we were younger, right? Mm-hmm. It's like not just a civic institution, but it's also like at the center of town, and you like you go there with your parents, and it's very like very much connective, part of the connective tissue of like community life in the United States. It's the old joke, like the person that you know the best is probably like your letter carrier. You know, they come to your house every day. I mean, in terms of like bureaucrats or like government officials. And it is, it's certainly a service that we would want to keep under communism. A hundred percent. Like, like that's, that's a good yardstick for whether or not a certain <laughs> bureaucratic institution should be defended. Right. Would we still have it under communism? Check right. yes or no. And the insane thing is like, it, it played such an crucial role it's in the fucking constitution is one thing right it's enumerated in the constitution that there has to be a post office we're not going to get into the hypocrisy argument but like the republicans destroying this thing unconstitutionally you gotta love it like that's just that's mm-hmm. just beautiful hypocrisy there yeah, but it's, like, it's, a, it's a trusted enough institution that we also want to put banks there because the places people do their banking now are bad and the post office is good well, that's why Obama wanted to put a payday lender on there to make sure that postal banking didn't come back. But, like, the post office is so popular because it provides this service that, that is only possible at this, at this scale. Because, like you said, you could send something from New York City to, like, the dead end of nowhere in Alaska for 55 cents. And that's a real lifeline for, like, poor and marginalized and working-class communities, especially in rural areas where, again, the post office is, like, the only piece of, like, government that they can touch and the only service that connects them oftentimes to the outside world. I mean, the Internet does, but this does it in, like, a real material way. They get their insulin through it. You know, they get all sorts of medication, all sorts of services and things that they can't get elsewhere. It comes through this vital lifeline. And which and it's so popular, of course, for that reason that like you can't destroy the post office through the Congress. You can chip away at it, but it has to be done, or at least in this instance, it is being done through this sort of vanguard action of like the vulture capitalist Trump coming in and just breaking the shit out of the thing because it would be too unpopular to like go after you know in a more sort of I don't know typical bourgeois mm-hmm. electoral way. Yeah, well, don't worry. Matt Iglesias has some really good ideas for how we can save the Postal Service, not limited to, but including um, them getting into the business of selling lotto tickets. <laughs> That's literally a tweet that he had. He literally said that? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. And Nathan Robinson replied to him, and he was like, oh, yeah, why don't they sell heroin, too? <laughs> like, why stop, why stop there? Wow. Matt Iglesias, man, maybe the biggest schmuck and dipshit uh, out there in the neoliberal sphere. But again, these neoliberals, Democrat or Republican, who are like aghast right now at what's happening, you bought it and now you fucking broke it. I'm sorry that it's ending up like to redound to the benefit of the fucking Cheeto, but you've been undermining this thing for fucking decades. Mm-hmm. Don't so, come crying to us. Yeah. Um, sorry so, to get sentimental about the post office, but it was no, nice. It's a nice, uh, it's a nice thing. It's, it's really cute that you're sentimental about the post office. <laughs> and we'll keep it under communism. 
So if, certainly, we we will not be taking away the mail. We will do mail better. There if won't anything. be banking because we're going to abolish money, but there will still be the ability to send things to people. That's right. I'll I'll work a shift a week at the communist post office. It sounds nice. I would be so happy to do sounds that. Sounds very nice. Um. Oh, what was I going to say? So. Let's fast forward to what can we do about this? Because sure, yeah. uh, we always like to solve problems by worker power. That's right. Here on the Antifada and the far left in general. But I am concerned that if the postal workers went on strike now, it might be a situation like with Reagan and the air traffic controllers where he's like, you know what? Fine. You're all fucking fired. Amazon is the mail now. That's what I wanted in the first place. Right. And uh, I wonder if a strike would actually help in this situation. You know, it's tough because um, you'd have to get around the politics of it and like, if you struck now, you would lose all liberal goodwill because you presumably wouldn't be selling, sending those ballots, right? <laughs> Which they're obviously primarily concerned about. But like, this this question comes up all the time. Like the the Patco people forget the Patco air traffic controllers in uh, 1981 thought they they could get quote unquote get away with their strike because they had endorsed Ronald Reagan. Right. They 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 thought Mm. politically that he would be on their side because he had this sort of, you know, right populist sort of morning in America standing up for the working man. Um, You fools. You fools. And 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 Reagan was just like a lot more together, even though his brain was melting similarly to Trump. He had a much more ruthless and effective political organization and was able to go in and just replace them with um the basically like army or, or air force air traffic controllers. But that, but even Patco is on a scale completely different from the post office. Like, do you have a lot of airports in 1981 around the country, but like, imagine trying to do all the mail with like the military or the national guard. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. I think the idea is we just wouldn't have mail anymore. And, uh, Amazon would be the new way of doing the mail. And of course they probably wouldn't go to a lot of areas, but, you know, fuck those people. Well, so so you could lose the strike and that could happen. But I guess the question at this point, and this is a strategic question, I don't know because I'm not in the union and I haven't, you know, I'm not on the ground, but like, is it better to strike right now, do something extremely heroic, not just for yourself, but for the American arguably global working class and try to fight back against this attack? Maybe win? but maybe lose and lose your job? Or is it better to just, again, die by a thousand cuts and get laid off in like a year anyways when the whole thing is privatized under Biden or Harris or something like that? I mean, I'm inclined to go with option A, but... <laughs> You're like, I would inc- I'd be inclined <laughs> to win. <laughs> I would prefer to win, but I think politically, in terms of this narrow political calculation that's going on right now, the focus would be then placed on the postal workers and Trump could say, oh, look, it's not me who's keeping this election from happening. It's these lazy working class, you know, brown postal workers. And that's why I have to be president forever. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to again, we're not actual postal workers. (laughs) It'd be kind of lit if we were and we had a left podcast, but we're not. Uh, So like one way around that, of course, would be to remember, like when the pandemic first hit, and there were workers in, I believe it was the Staten Island Amazon facility who were complaining because Amazon said we're only going to be sending out essential goods, right? Because it's not safe for people to work in this. So we're only going to be sending out medicine. We're only going to be sending out like 
I don't know, diapers or whatever it is. But then <laughs> this guy came up, and maybe Andy can find the, the video, that one of the Amazon workers stood up and was like, we are shipping in this pandemic, in this emergency, we are still shipping out dildos. That is not an essential service. And everybody joked mm, for like a couple depends days. Depends who about, you ask. Right? <laughs> that was the joke. This was like six months ago or whatever. But you can imagine postal workers being strategic and only shipping medicine, only shipping ballots, right, to try to get around that sort of thing. But the, but this is all academic anyways because I don't even know if we're at the point right now in this crisis or even in American history where, like, a strike on, on that of that size is really on the radar. It would take uh, something very, very heroic to see, and I think it would take a bit of, like, more general workers organizing a lot more than we have uh, you know, to actually, for people to actually pull the trigger on it. I hate to say, maybe I'm wrong. You know, yeah. maybe, maybe something uh, on that scale could happen, but, um, and I think there's a way that it could happen and work, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I also don't think most of the postal workers would want to do anything that could help Trump in any way. Yeah, no. So that's, that would be a consideration for them. Well, we'll keep our ear on the ground. We'll, uh, any time our letter carrier comes by, we'll just quietly whisper to them, general strike, general strike, mm. and hope that uh, they can influence the rest of the membership. But uh, support the post office in any way that you can. I don't know. Have a bake sale. Have a bake Buy sale. Buy some lotto tickets. It's weird. It almost, Buy some heroin. It almost seems like the way that they could intervene here would be like working more for free and sending out all the ballots. But like, that's not something that we want workers to do. Yeah, no. It, the whole thing is messy. Mm -hmm. I think the point, like the larger historical point that I was trying to make is this, like, this is a deeply neoliberal thing that's happening. It's just happening chaotically. And the only reason that like the quote unquote opposition is upset about it is because it's helping the dang Cheeto in the White House. But we, of course, should have like a more bird's eye view of this, a, a, an Archimedean viewpoint with which to like slot this into our understanding of what's happening to the state in this particular crisis of capitalism and also how neoliberalism as this particular form that capitalism takes affects all these institutions in the, in the long term. Now, as neoliberalism fails or doesn't, I don't know what's happening right now in terms of that particular re regime of accumulation, we're going to continue, I think, regardless to see all sorts of attacks on institutions like this, whether it's the post office or whether it's unions or whatever it is. Any, anything that's left for the vultures to strip for parts, they're going to go for. Stay tuned, folks. So speaking of the rolling nightmare we are all living through yeah. in this 2020 neoliberal hell world, aye, aye, aye. Um, this might be a stale news item, but it's still of interest to me. As you, someone who likes to keep an eye on these things. You say stale, but I, I feel like the um, events are happening so quickly now. It's like something stale within a couple of days of it happening. It's just event after event. That's fair. Nothing is stale because everything is stale. Exactly. So nothing stale is. Stale social system. Did you, uh, did you set the timer for this part? Uh, I will right now. Got to set that timer. All right. Got to do gotta, the Andy work. We've got our automated time cop going. So... Uh, this is an item that came across my desk last week, mm -hmm. but was bumped to this week because we were just having such a good time talking to Virgil about other shit. It's a great episode. Indeed. I've gotten some good feedback about it. Same. Um, I don't know if you remember the woman known as Ice Bay. I think I recall the Ice Bay. She Remind us. She is an ice agent uh -huh. that people noticed 
to be attractive yes. after a photo of her, you know, working in one of these uh, child prisons <laughs> was released in oh, the God. media. Yeah. So, you know, since then, she's gone, she's gone a bit quiet. Um, I was wondering, like, what's up with her? Is she still hot? Does she still have tits? Like, what's... What's she been up to? Has she been uh, perhaps educated by all the negative attention she's received? Maybe did she uh, did she quit ice? Did she do something else? That whole episode was like um, in like the fifties and sixties. Remember they used to have cartoons and also like exploitation films with like sexy Nazi guards. You know? Oh yeah. That was it. Was that like Stalag thirteen sort of vibe going around? Mm-hmm. And people were actually horny for it, just like they were probably actually horny for the Nazis in those uh, in those films. Yeah. Well, um, fascism is extremely libidinal and uh, yes, aesthetic, if yeah. nothing else. Great. Great. This is a great segue. So, and Ice Bay is also uh, Latina, right? She is indeed. So that adds a whole other element of depravity to this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it, go on. So, so tell us what's what's been going on with Ice Bay for the last. So couple of weeks. she said that she had a big announcement to make mm. on her social media, but she was waiting for approval from her employer, uh-huh. which is presumably still Ice, and then. I guess she must have gotten that approval because she came out with the news that she now has. She has quit ICE and she's seen the light and she wants to um, condemn putting children in cages. Ha ha ha. What a funny world. What a nice world you must be living in. No, no. Uh, Now she has decided to monetize her status as ICE Bay by starting an OnlyFans. That sucks so fucking bad. So I guess what this means is ICE approved the OnlyFans, which makes sense, right? Because they'd rather have people thinking about this hot, sexy lady who works for them than all the horrible shit that they're doing to, you know, persecute and torture uh, immigrants and their children. So it's like, all right, we're ICE and we approve these titties. Oh my God, (laughs) that sucks so fucking bad. How is her OnlyFans doing? Um, You know what? I haven't looked. I'm guessing it's doing quite well. You haven't seen those ICE titties? Yeah, I mean, best case scenario, she is just secretly working to make enough money off her OnlyFans so she can someday quit ICE and denounce them, <laughs> having seen the light. But uh, I don't know. This is too much of a hell world, I think, maybe, for that happy outcome. Yeah, I don't know. It just it just seems like such a perfect confluence of these related phenomena of, on the one hand, this crisis this rising fascism, authoritarian response to the crisis. At the same time, everyone's very atomized in this neoliberal hell world, and you're you're paying for sort of a simulacrum of a relationship with the people you follow on OnlyFans. You know, you're getting uh, some titty pics. Maybe they'll talk to you a little bit. And these things seem somewhat related, and they seem to have come together in a really perfect way in the form of the Ice Bay OnlyFans. Yeah, it's like, um, it's monetizing, it's like commodifying some, like, um, it's, it's commodifying a body that, like, is attractive to certain people, some sick, small subsection of humanity who gets off on the idea that she does sick and depraved state-sanctioned things to kids. Like, when you said libidinal, I think there that's that's a huge part of what people think about, at least, like, 
culturally or socially when, when they when they think of like classical fascism, right? There's something very kind of psychosexual about the entire thing. But let's let's drill down further into that. Like Yes. At the same time, I certainly support my uh, leftist comrades who <laughs> have OnlyFans accounts and sure. uh, I think that I actually know a one a friend of mine likes to support leftist hot leftist women on their OnlyFans because um, he thinks having good politics is hot. Yeah, just just like bad people think people with bad <laughs> politics who work for ICE are hot. It's like the the whole insane sort of extreme political battle is now happening in the strangest of places, like on online. Um, I don't know what you would call it, like socially mediated, commodified, sexual friend That's spaces. Right. It's on the, the long internet. march through the institutions. <laughs> but there's like a guerrilla war happening. On, on sexy sites. Holy shit. Maybe that's where it's going to start. Hell world, You never baby. know. Yeah. So Or end. <laughs> this is going to be the last two combatants in like uh, the left versus right. It's going to be like gonna Ice be... Bay versus Janice Griffith. <laughs> yeah. May the best person win. Uh, Obviously, we're rooting for Janice. Yeah, I know who we're voting for. Yeah, for sure. Oh <laughs> I'm voting God. Janice I'm, for I'm voting, with, <laughs> voting with my dollars. <laughs> that's right. And my eyeballs. Um, we should get her on the show sometime. We've talked about that for a while. Yeah. We, we stand an Antifa socialist um, sex worker. Heck yeah. Adult actress. Um, yeah, yeah. So fascism, fascism. Like, Fascism, fascism. Fascism, fascism. What is a fascism? What is a fascism? Is Trump a fascism? Is Trump a fascism? It's tough, man. It's really tough because, like, I see it thrown around a lot. I see fascists thrown around a lot to mean any number of things. And, of course, like, the famous caricature is, like, the upper middle class kid in the 1960s with, like, long hair uh, and their father's telling them to stop smoking weed and they call their father a fascist. You know, there's like that very kind of cringe sort of like, you know, dumb hippie anti-authoritarian thing about it that comes out of the new left. So like it, it seems like 10 years ago it was much more cringe to call things fascist than it is now. And of course, times have changed a lot in the last 10 years. So it's like. It's harder. It's harder to be say, "Oh, that's cringe," and it's easier to say, "Like, yeah, this is fucked up." <laughs> you know, I tend to vacillate wildly back and forth on talking about uh, our current government as a fascist threat. On the one hand, I do think that this kind of hysterical fear mongering about fascism has been used as a tool by the neoliberal center to beat back challenges from the left, that's right. as evidenced by. All of the people who support Medicare for all, but voted for Joe Biden anyway, citing beating Trump as their number one priority. Right, right. If we we have to mobilize, we have to vote blue no matter who. We have to do the lesser of two. We have to settle for Biden, right, in order to stop the fascist Cheeto in the White House. At, at the Very same time, evocative. I do think fascism is something that we should keep an eye on and be concerned about. However... I disagree with the idea that the way to beat it back is by electing Joe Biden. Hot take. I know. <laughs> yeah, especially when we talked about Obama and like and how much work he's done, not just on this episode, but on other episodes to set the stage for exactly what Trump is to give him the powers to ratify the things under George W. Bush, you know, uh, and then basically hand those things to Donald Trump. So if, if you're going to call Donald Trump a fascist, of course, you have to, unless you're a dumbass lib, interrogate how we got to the point where it was so easy for an alleged fascist dictator to take over the executive branch of the U.S. government. That's right. So 
I'm going to save my thesis on this for the end, although I feel like people kind of know where I'm going with it. And I want to bang through some definitions and characteristics of fascism that I have come across in my travels. And and I'm going to sit here and I'll comment on them, but I've got my own sort of take on this very amorphous, difficult to understand term, not just today, but also from a historical perspective. But let's see some other people's chances, shots at at trying to give this fascism thing a definition. And I should say, like even people who study fascism as their life's work do not have a commonly agreed upon definition of fascism. That's how slippery it is, folks. Yeah, that's right. And and I would the last thing I'll say before I'll let you go too is I think the only way to definitively know if somebody is a fascist is if they say they're a fascist. <laughs> so like Mussolini, a fascist, because he basically said, I'm a fascist. I mean, other than that, you're, you're talking about interpretations of social and political action that uh, we can use historical grounding to try to understand and think about how they interact with other things in capitalist society. However, like, yeah, it's, it's very slippery. And the F word has been, you know, pretty thoroughly stigmatized at this point in time, I would say. So nobody but the most fringe uh, elements of the far right are ever going to own up to that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So let's let's see. Let's get some a checklist here. Let's see so if we could define fascism with a checklist. I've come up with a little bit of a checklist. All right, let's do so, it. So <clears throat> let's see. Um, so first of all, fascism is... Unique to the capitalist mode of production. It is a modern innovation, right? Because you could have like a feudal monarchy with absolute power, but that's not fascism, folks. That's not fascism. Um, Yeah, so far so good. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it is a creature of capitalism. It involves a suspension of bourgeois democracy and the imposition of a one-party state, which um, hasn't happened yet, although you never know. I'm talking about in our current context. Oh, sure, sure. Of course, this can also happen under communism, but that's not fascism. That is authoritarian communism. Well, I I already want to stop here at the second one on our checklist because there are historical examples. uh, For example, in Salazar's Estado Novo in uh, Portugal, which is classically considered one of the, like a fascist moment in the 1920s through the 1970s, where he specifically rejects the idea of a one-party state. In fact, uh, that system rejected the idea of like um, subordination to a political party in general and instead said that the state itself and civil society could fill that role. So it's arguable that you could have fascism without a single party, but it's not arguable that you can have fascism and democracy at the same time. Right. And I think it goes farther even than saying like fascism is like anti-democratic. I think historically the goal of fascism itself has been to destroy democracy. That's like right. Directly, just saying, like, this is what we're going to do. Democracy doesn't work. We need to go from a multi-party system to either a one-party system or simply just subordinate everything to the state because democracy sucks dick. So, yeah, that's definitely part of it. Um, but maybe the one-party thing is something that fascism doesn't necessarily need. Sure, okay. sure. Um, now we have a, a pretty popular definition I've heard bandied about, which is the suppression of the left amid some kind of popular approval and energy, usually involving some kind of class cross bonds of nationalism or ethnicity. I'd say that we, uh, we don't really have that right now because there's no real leftist threat to suppress. Yeah. And, uh, you know, aside from a few uh, street gangs like the Proud Boys or whatever, I would not define the people who support Trump as any kind of grassroots street movement. <laughs> no. 
Unless it's like a uh, a roving mob of mobility scooters and, <laughs> and like yachts just tooling around in like the, the causeways of Florida, yeah. I mean, you know, anything is possible. <laughs> but like the, the question is though, because <clears throat> now we're talking about fascism and it's like fully formed state, you know, could there be like proto elements of that in like, um, who are those chuckleheads out on the, in the Northwest, like the, uh, Patriot prayer groups and certainly what we saw in Charlottesville, those were like an attempt to try to overlap with Trumpism and try to create like a street movement. It didn't yeah, work. And it failed. Yeah. Antifa defeated them essentially, <laughs> which is like, people don't talk about, but like Antifa beat, beat those people on the streets and still do. But like, yeah, Charlottesville was a major loss for them. Yeah. They, um, they'll admit it, too. So those fascists... Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe they, not so much. Um, but, you know, maybe this new version of fascism doesn't need that. Um, I'm going to continue. Go on. We got um, a definition I kind of got from Moisha Post Stone. Oh, our man. Yeah. From an essay that I half understood where you can define it as a resolution of the contradictions of capitalism mm. by place by displacing people's anger towards the system, particularly developments they don't really understand within it, like global finance capital, onto some scapegoated other. Sure. And I, I would argue that we do have this in America to some degree, but also that we've had it for a very long time when you talk about immigrants taking the jobs or whatever. Yeah, and and like traditional anti-Semitism and anti-black sentiment in the United States. I, you know, Post Stone, it's a very influential article for me in trying to understand it. Most importantly, the resolution that fascism poses is a, is a false resolution, right? Because essentially what it tries to do is counterpose a good, virtuous, national uh, industrial capital on the one hand versus an evil, bad international finance capital on the other. And we, as we learned from Line Goes Down and all the other political economy we've all done on the Antifada, know that industrial and finance capital cannot be separated. They're actually just different moments in the metamorphosis of the commodity form itself. But what fascism says is if we just pull capital out of this financial role that it takes and bring it down to earth and make it industrial we can have good capital we can have national fascist capital mm -hmm. as it turns out that's impossible to do these contradictions they don't resolve folks no the abstract and the concrete they're not going to resolve for you use S value and exchange is not going to do it sbt sorry about that but the scapegoating thing i think you're, you're extremely right on and i think that that we can talk about uh what's populist about fascism too but but go on mm -hmm. Um, now we have a definition that um, I've most recently heard from Matt Chrisman, although I've heard it from a lot of other people too, which is when a dying empire brings imperial tactics home and uses them on its own citizens, usually amid some kind of crisis. And I would argue that we certainly have this in the U.S. If you want to look at some of the history we've gone over of the police force yeah. using um, tactics they learned in the occupation of the Philippines, et cetera, et cetera. Counterinsurgency um, and militarization. Yeah. But it's not exclusive to Trump. No. And one more that I would like to set forth that I think will open up a wider discussion of fascist economics sure. between which, our between our vast panel here that we have discussing this <laughs> yeah we got you me and the cats yeah that's right that's 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 quartet as, that's great not being as noisy as last time yeah no they're chilling good meows. um it combines uh yeah so this, in this definition and this is one i think i've gotten a little overly hung up on in the past because i think it's a bit of a red herring um in that it combines some version of social democracy for the right people 
with an exclusionism towards the wrong people. And we obviously don't have this in America. And if you actually dig into the policies of, you know, well-known far-right parties around the world, I would argue that the social democracy part is primarily rhetorical. Right. So... You, you have, like, the national... The closest it comes these days is the National Front, which we can argue is post-fascist, if that makes sense, uh, who are, like, trying to, at least in, in their imaginary and in their voters' imaginary, fighting this rearguard action to defend what social democratic institutions exist still from the social democratic moment in France, right? So they're like, but just for, obviously, for quote-unquote French people, for white people. Yeah. I mean, we certainly have some far-right parties getting closer to that and others getting farther away. But I wonder, I don't think that social democracy is a necessary component of fascist economics. And in fact, it usually isn't. Because like we were talking about before the show, in Pinochet's Chile being the prime example, fascism and neoliberalism are extremely compatible and actually they have a lot in common. Right, exactly. They they, they arise... Um, co- as co-equal partners in the project in 1973 in order to overthrow the existing order of Allende's social democratic Chile with all the trade unions and workers' protections and everything that we know about. Or even in these classical examples of fascism, you know, Nazi Germany being the primary one, sure. I think there is a common misconception that I had as well that things actually got better for the average German family Within this, you know, certainly not for the Jews, but for for the right people within this fascist state. And that's actually not true at all. Tell us more. Um, Okay, so I recently read an article in the L.A. Review of Books that I thought was very interesting um, that shows how uh, the economics of Nazi Germany in many ways prefigured the economics of neoliberalism that became much more widespread in the neoliberal era. Like they were actually ahead of the curve in a lot of ways at a time when a lot of other places, including the U.S., were busy responding to the Great Depression with some kind of, you know, basic social democratic welfare state. Um, They were going in the other direction, Mm. as it turns out. Creating monopolies, right, instead of breaking them up and... uh yeah, and so privatizing vast swaths of the economy. And they actually had to come up with a new word for it, which because uh, it was so new at the time, the idea of reprivatization, because the Weimar Republic had been, you know, deprivatizing and nationalizing things. Was it a German word with like 18 syllables? It's got a lot. I'm not going to try it. <laughs> But, you know, you can look it up, folks. For for monster, gewein, a flinken, 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 flinken. So it's actually pretty interesting um, because you think of fascist economics. I mean, it's literally called corporatism. Oh, I have a lot to say about corporatism. You think of it as, you know, strict state control over private industry. But it turns out there was actually a lot of privatization happening in Nazi Germany that would... um, promote monopolies, crowd out the uh, smaller firms. And as long as these large firms were producing all the stuff that the state needed for the war machine, they're like, actually, this is fine. And 
we see the rise of a new class of quote unquote super managers. Super managers. Um, They're managers, but great. Different from the PMC. All I'm not right. going to include professionals in here. <laughs> um, that's the managerial class. That's something different. Yeah, no, the all the SMC, professors. The super managerial class. And um, yeah, and income inequality actually rose quite a bit in Nazi Germany and the majority of the gains were going to these super managers, these representatives, these managers of industry who were being paid um, quite a lot of money to do their work, which, you know, maybe wasn't that hard. And it's, it's a similar thing that we see now The people who CEOs of companies and whatnot are getting paid a ridiculous amount of money. And how do you explain that? You can explain it by, oh, they're generating capital for the company. That's nonsense. We know that that's nonsense. The workers are creating that value. And the thing that this article posits that I think is very interesting and convincing is that, you know, if we can see a a sort of complete osmosis between the state and uh, the private sector, the reason they're being paid so handsomely is because they are doing the work of governing. Mm, Interesting. What do you think about that? No, no, that's that's fascinating because... It, it's so Mussolini is the earliest fascist, right? He's the one that creates this term. And as we know, much to our dismay, but it is the God honest truth. He comes out of the socialist party of Italy and he was very much influenced by a lot of the, uh, syndicalist ideas, you know, we think now of anarcho syndicalism, but syndicalism just was a big movement in the late 19th and early 20th century that helps to create, this fascist moment in Italy in the 1920s. What if syndicalism, but bad? <laughs> yeah, very bad. The very bad syndicalism is national syndicalism. If anybody ever throws national syndicalism out to you, run or beat them over the head with something. National anything is yeah. generally a dicey proposition. Even national anarchism, they tried to make that a thing like a what? decade ago. It wasn't good. It, was, it just turns out it was like white tribal breakaway murder states. Yeah, of yeah, course. Not good. <laughs> but no, anyway, so like... This was this was purported to be the great innovation of fascism, you know, when it comes starts in the 1920s and then obviously in the 19 later in the 20s spreads to Portugal and then Spain and the Spanish Civil War, Nazi Germany, yada, yada, yada. The Balkans, you know, there was a big fascist movement in the Balkans, too. The, the reality on the ground after the First World War, as we know, is that the good guys finally won. The good guys finally broke through. The Bolsheviks managed to have a successful communist revolution in Russia. And so that was just a smaller part of like a, a larger kind of mass movement around the world of workers organizing, creating revolutions, trying to break through, trying to break the capitalist state to create socialism, to create communism. This scares the shit out of the United States and elsewhere. In the U.S., we had the Palmer raids. Matt and I talked about that on History as a Weapon, breaking up the IWW and all the Reds. Uh, the way that that uh, happens in Italy is... Mussolini posits himself in the fascist movement as a way, not simply to re to in a revolutionary fashion, reorder the state in such a way that it creates a stable and modernizing influence on the society. Because if nothing else, fascism in this pure form is a revolutionary movement that seeks to destroy democracy, not the state, though. It seeks to seize the state and use the state as this new sort of um, unitary uh, institution in society that all things can fall under. The state dominating all aspects of human life in what he called a totalitarian way. But the point of all this and where it gets to corporatism is that the innovation of Mussolini and the fascists was to say the class struggle is real. Workers and bosses have a true 
conflict with one another. But the way to mediate that is not to have uh, leftist trade unions such as existed uh, and the, or to try to make to sweep this away. The state has to play a role of creating a corporate body that can take, say, the managers and owners of a certain industry, let's say, because Italy, marble, right? So you take the marble bosses and you put them in the same corporate unit. Corporate just means like a body where people sit down and work things out together next to the workers, right? And find a compromise using the state so that everybody in that industry and then in a wider view, the entire economy of Italy and elsewhere can actually mediate all of their interests using the state and these corporate bodies. So Mm. what fascism purported to do was to recognize class struggle, but it said we have a way of stopping this class struggle from getting out of hands. This was very, very persuasive for the capitalists who said, oh great, you've got a new idea, we don't have to deal with unions anymore, we can sit down on a corporate board and we can just hash everything out. Oh yeah, and by the way, Nazis, not a big fan of the unions. Yeah, no, no, I mean, and, and Mussolini smashes up the primarily communist movements that existed at the time and replaced them with fascist unions which were essentially just like state unions completely beholden to capital but just imagine all the uh, marble workers sitting around the table with the marble bosses like <laughs> oh, mama mia my hands are so tired from making all these uh, male nudes out of a marble what can you do for me and then in, a, in, a, in, the, in the perfect world of fascism they'd all like mediate it out and be happy but this is the point in reality so that's like the ideology, and that's what fascism claimed it was doing. But similar to what you were talking about in Nazi Germany, where they were claiming, you know, later on, a, a decade later, to create a sort of heron-voke social democracy, what they were truly doing is destroying organic communist working-class institutions and replacing them with basically the unmitigated rule of the capitalist class. Because Mussolini, Hitler, Franco, Salazar, of course, at the end of the day, they always, because this is how industrial policy worked, needed to placate capital. And by destroying the left unions and, you know, left worker organizations, were, of course, able to tip the hand directly towards capital. So corporatism is really a red herring because it, it, do, it never really exists in Italy. Even the, the Italian fascism had fucking 20 years. And by the end of it, they were no closer to corporatism than they were at the beginning. But that ideology was very sustaining for them and for the capitalists and for the world media who thought in the United States, you had like the nation talking about the wonders that Mussolini is doing over in Europe. You had progressives in the United States going over and studying, you know, the, the, the techniques of fascism to try to figure out industrial and labor policy in the United States. They would. They would. But, you know, it's just one last thing is that this corporatism, it doesn't just come from syndicalism. It also comes from Catholicism, which is why in classical fascism, you see, especially in Portugal and Spain. And then later, I'm perfectly, perfectly happy to call what happens in the 60s and 70s and 80s in Central and South America fascism. What you see there is the influences of, believe it or not, uh, a papal uh, encyclia of, of 1891 by Pope Leo XIII that says basically the same thing, that every aspect of society, the workers and the bosses, they're all part of the greater whole, which is the body of Christ, and they shouldn't be fighting each other. We should create a sort of distributionist way, a Catholic way of tamping down on this class struggle, and we should do that through the church. So what fascism does is it takes that Catholic 
uh, corporatism, and it replaces it with the state. Which, by the way, um, we, we'd like to talk about the role of religion uh, some, some on this show, because I think it can manifest in all sorts of different ways. I don't think there's anything inherently fascist about religion or spirituality, and we've certainly seen it go the other way in terms of liberation theology. But as part of the culture, as part of the superstructure, it's a very malleable, malleable tool that can look different ways depending who's in charge and who's using it for what reasons. You, you had to have, like, that's, it's interesting because if you look at these classical cases, they, they could either be Catholic or not. They either had to be deeply Catholic or deeply atheist and like, and like state oriented because you needed again. In, in or, this, you know, evangelical Christian like we have uh, well, in this yeah. country. Let's start, let's start moving forward with the history. Because you got to have a cultural element in order to get all these people on board with something that, you know, might not be in their best interests if you really think about it. Yeah, like, I don't know, to, to bring things forward through time, like I said, Operation Condor uh, in South America, and certainly the fact that in, like, West Germany, uh, Truanon had a good episode about this recently. Like, they literally just put the, the mid-level Nazis back in charge of the government. Like, we all know that Cold War, world, uh, Cold War story, right, of what happens um, in this period, but, like... It's tough to say that like fascism was this and fa or fascism is this because there's a great continuity that exists between that, not just in like, you know, ideology and practice, but also in terms of some of the personnel like neo fascism parties pop up immediately again in post-war Italy. Yeah, well, doesn't uh, Bolsonaro over there in Brazil have some direct ties to people from the Pinochet government? I wouldn't be surprised. I haven't heard that, but I wouldn't be surprised. So let's get to like to how close this is to what we're seeing in the modern era, right? Is let's fascism like a checklist? I think we've we've seen this checklist, and we can like say that capitalism is this, or fascism is this in a certain sense, and isn't this in another. Sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that. So if fascism isn't a checklist, fascism isn't your father telling you you can't smoke weed or stay out late on the weekend. What? is fascism. I, I think not at the risk of getting Hegelian on this, I'm going to say that instead of looking at fascism as a thing, it perhaps makes sense to look as look at fascism, if not as a tendency, then as sort of a process that exists under capitalism. You that, and your dialectics. Uh, does that make sense? Is it dialectics? It's, uh, it's not all di not all processes are dialectical, I guess. I, I when you when I it's dialectical in the sense that like when we say moving target, maybe that's because it's a process that's constantly churning. Maybe it's this tendency that exists, that always exists under capitalism, where democracy or, or liberal democracy and illiberal democracy or democracy and authoritarianism exist on this spectrum and it's constantly sort of bouncing from one to another based on the needs ultimately of capital itself. Because the one, the, the one definition you didn't do is like the famous one that doesn't really explain all that much, but it's like very useful, which is fascism is capitalism and decay. That's right. Who said that? It's been know, attributed to Lenin. It's Is been it attributed Gramsci? to a lot of different people. Yeah, it's definitely a 20th century thing. I'm going to say that we came up with it, though. We Antifada, you heard it here first, folks. Fascism is capitalism in decay. But, like, what does that even mean, right? Like, you, you brought up it the... It means pretty much whatever you want it to mean. <laughs> it does something important, which is that it, I, I, I think this is true. It ties the rise of fascism and its tendencies to capitalism and it's, it's breakdown yeah, itself. Yeah, because you can't have uh, 
you can't have a movement to suppress democracy unless you have democracy first. Right. And you can't have a ideology that seeks to like smooth over or resolve the contradictions of capitalism without, as you said, having capitalism itself, right? It seems like there's something sort of intricately combined here. And I, I think it's it's true, too, just in a very banal and basic way that we see the rise of, like, these fascist or, dare we say, post-fascist movements arise directly out of economic and political and social crises, right? So Trump was uh, several years before COVID, and Bolsonaro was a couple of years before COVID. But we know... Well, he won't be to, any years after COVID. <laughs> uh, if he, uh, Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro has had COVID how many fucking times now? He's addicted to that he shit. He has had it 68 <laughs> times. That's but a, maybe the 69th time will be a charm. When he gets to the 69th time, I'm going to say, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people will. <laughs> maybe that'll be the one that gets him. But yeah, so we have like a return of this, but... There has to be a way, and Enzo uh, Traverso has a book called Post about post fascism. Right, he defines this. He 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 points to like the need for all of us to, at, at, at on, the, on the one hand, uh, have a have some sort of continuity between what happens in the early twentieth century and what happened today, because there are these similarities that we're talking to. But we also need to understand the differences too, and not think that, of course, fascism is going to come necessarily with a swastika, you know, or with like the the, the symbols of classical fascism. Yeah, I mean, we're living in historically unique conditions right now, so to try to map the old definitions and characteristics of fascism, which is an extremely slippery, ever-evolving thing, a process, even dialectical process, maybe. Uh, it's able to incorporate, uh, it's able to exist under a, a Keynesian regime, it's able to exist under a neoliberal regime. I don't know. We need to, we need to keep, uh, keep our mind open to the evolving ways that it could uh manifest it could develop um well, here's here's my take like so to say that there's something intricately or, or to understand fascism as a process as this tendency that always exists within capitalism and and then to connect that to the the, the crisis theory of fascism i think that the best and the tendency of the rate of profit to fall over time that's right I think Hashtag line goes down. <laughs> so when the line goes down and when that um, exhibits itself in a generalized crisis of society, right, a capitalist crisis of society, it throws the normal world into disorder. And the way that the normal world, quote unquote, is supposed to work, or at least like when we think of the golden age of capitalism or like a stable capitalist democracy, the way it's supposed to work is that human beings are compelled to social action, compelled to to wage labor, compelled to like living in order in their communities and buying things, doing all the good things that bourgeois sub subjects are supposed to do. They're compelled to do that by ab the abstraction of the market, right? The market is functioning. There's money floating around. There's jobs for people. You don't need the whip hand of capital at your back at that moment in time. The workers of a country or of the world do not need somebody forcing them back into the factory. They don't need the, the small protections they had brutally smashed in front of them to compel them to work harder, to make more profit, to make more value for the system. However, when this crisis happens, that whip hand of capital has been there the whole time, but it's been in abeyance. And suddenly those abstract compulsions that are you know, exhibited under normal capitalism, the one we don't, ones we don't even see, all of a sudden are no longer sufficient 
in order to keep the rate of profit or to have a, a, a rate of profit high enough for there to be successful expanded accumulation, then all of a sudden you need to start seeing these concrete measures to get the system working again. And I think in like on the highest level of abstraction, that is what fascism as a process is, right? It is basically this, this ability of capital and its state always to compel that sits in abeyance until it's needed. And it's needed, it was needed in the 1920s and 1930s, and it's needed today. And a lot of the differences, and I think that, that your point's well taken on the, on the Nazism, the Nazi economic stuff, the difference is that in the fascist countries in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, they were developmental regimes. They happened not in the strong, successful, colonialist, imperialist, capitalist powers that existed. They came up in the ones that had been left behind. So the war machine of fascism and the brutal suppression of the working class is a way to try to, for capital in its, in its own weird sense, to try to self-develop itself, using violence and using the state, using war, uh, to self-develop itself out of this funk that it had been in in all these countries. Now we're not... We're, we're not only not not in a period, in the, especially in the United States and Brazil and Hungary and all these countries where we're seeing a post-fascist moment, we're not only not in a period where we need developmentalism and like a push towards industrialization, we're in a point where the crisis is that there's too much. So fascism couldn't be the same. We're not, we, we're, right now, uh, governments and and. And, and, and media, they're not forcing people like to go work in the salt mines directly. They're doing much more insidious things, which is creating surplus populations. And for the people that work, you know, in, in, in the midst of this global pandemic, they're basically forcing um, low paid retail workers like back into these deadly environments in order to, to work for minimum wage so that the economy can keep going. That's way different from a mass industrialization drive mm -hmm. like you saw in the past. So basically like the way that this fascism, this process of fascism exhibits itself socially, politically and economically is ultimately I think based on the needs for capital to get out of its crisis in whatever particular way makes sense in that particular historical moment. That's right. And if you want to relate it back to the police state that we have here. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you could say the elements of fascism have been present all along, but certainly in the neoliberal era, as the development of the capitalist economy has created more surplus populations, um, it needs a violent way to dominate and suppress them. And it has been doing that through mass incarceration, which is a trend that started going back to the 1960s and has certainly been intensifying till today. Until now, um, we're going to see an intensification of that as more and more people are thrown into the surplus population and, um, you know, maybe more quote-unquote, uh, regular middle-class people, white people, whatever, are getting wise to the utter bankruptcy and Oop, nonsensical character of the system. It's starting to spill over onto them, which is getting more attention. Um, I guess I should wrap this up here. No, let's go another five but, minutes. Uh, it's this automated time cop can't give us snarky <laughs> or like do like weird hand things at us. That's and get right. Mad, so let's just go for another five. So... My sort of uh, summation of this here is um, Trump is not a traditional fascist because he doesn't need to be. Right. However, maybe if we take a broader, more diffuse view of fascism, it is certainly present in our government. And a lot of it is a sort of seamless continuation or intensification of stuff that's been here all along. Right. right? Many elements of fascism are 
baked into the American cake from the beginning. Right. We have violent repression of minorities and the left to the degree that we have the left. Uh, we've got massive giveaways and propping up of the private sector, which, as we've discussed, um, you know, fascism and neoliberalism can uh, they could get along. Um, the U.S. system is set up in such a way that these things are all being carried out already without having to suspend the rules of bourgeois democracy, right. which, big. if anything, plays a bit of a role in manufacturing consent yes. for the two-party rule of capital. Thank you for that, because I think that that is like that. If it, that explains why Trump's quote-unquote fascism, or like his fascist moment, or his fascist tendency, isn't trying to directly destroy democracy as a Pinochet or Salazar was doing, is because democracy is such as it exists, like pretty the weak. formal bourgeois democracy as it exists, is actually perfectly adequate to their needs at this mm -hmm. moment in time. And they also don't need this upsurge of right populist violence in the form of militias marching through the streets. Because they have the police! Because they literally already have <laughs> literally. that at their beck and call in a way that's, you know, much easier to control in some ways than this right. um, massive uh, right populist crazy people, right? right, right. Like, I've, I've heard it said that Trump's not a fascist, he's an authoritarian, the difference being that, hey, uh, stop it. The cats stop are finally right acting up as we're the winding cats are, The cats are anarchists. They're like, fuck you, you can't tell us <laughs> But they're not do. syndicalists, though, that's great. <laughs> mm -mm. Um, where is I going with this? Uh, yeah, like, he doesn't need this... Uh, this right populist energy in the streets. In fact, he kind of hates. He kind of hates people. He does. He doesn't <laughs> want to touch them. He doesn't or... even like his own supporters. Yeah, like no. he's like, why would you deal with all that when you could just have this like orderly authoritarian state? Um, so TLDR, uh, yes, there are elements of fascism that we can identify in our current government. Most of them are a smooth continuation of stuff that was already developing for decades and decades. Therefore, it's not something we can simply vanquish by getting the Cheeto out of the White House and replacing him with a corporate Democrat. And if fascism is capitalism and decay, Joe Biden ain't going to do shit about that. So vote for him if you want. But they're both the accelerationist option in that capitalism is probably going to keep decaying. And it remains our job to build out a mass working class base capable of fighting and winning a revolution, which is the only thing that's going to resolve these contradictions for real. Nice. That is the, the resolution that the fascists wanted. The only way to do that, to actually resolve things, to sublate them, if you will, is to actually end this whole farce and this whole social system, get past it and move on. Certainly Biden, as you said, is not going to do that. And I think that we should be one interesting and scary thing is the way that American nationalist republicanism has been utilized. In fact, democracy and freedom themselves. Small R Republican. Yeah, small R Republican have actually been used as a backdoor way to destroy these sort of Republican institutions in this moment. So anyways, don't maybe get too hung up on trying to pinpoint exactly what fascism is. Maybe it is still a little cringe to constantly call people like, 
you know, politicians, fascists. Certainly the f- police are part of, like, what we can see as maybe, like, a post-fascist, militarized, authoritarian death machine that will oh, yeah. ultimately... And by the way, the PBA has made their first ever presidential endorsement of Donald Trump. Oh, perfect, yeah. That's a good way to manufacture consent for the stormtroopers is to have pliable unions filled with right, right-wing thugs and psychopaths who want to destroy democracy as well, at least civil liberties. So, like, uh, this actually went exactly how's I, how I wanted it to because I didn't think, and we certainly didn't, come to the end of this episode having solved the fascism question because you can't really do that. It's too slippery of a subject. But I think we gave people some things to look out for. And certainly, as you said, like uh, a, a sort of um, militant eye towards what needs to be done. Because if anything, if fascism is anything, and I think that's why so many people use it today, it's a very evocative and powerful rhetorical tool. Because what our consciousness of history, and I mean that not just us on the left, but Americans and people in the world in general, our consciousness of history knows that fascism is something that not only didn't work, but was horribly violent and destructive, not just of institutions, but also of human lives. So when we call things fascist, it's actually a militant call to uh, to rise up and destroy them, right? So this is why, of course, like it's very tempting to call everything fascist because it uh, immediately elicits a reaction from people. Unfortunately, now the right wing are calling us fascists. They're calling anti-father real fascists. So we can maybe get a little too far with that, but we need to remind ourselves of what it was in the past and certainly the tendencies that are giving rise to a new sort of scary, frightening post-fascist moment. Dead ass. All right, thanks, folks. I'll be the grapes fermented bottled and served with the table set in my finest a perfect gentleman I'll be the fire escape that's bolted to the ancient brick where you will sit and contemplate your day